So hopefully with your strong mindfulness and wisdom, you've come to realize that this retreat tomorrow is going to be ending. And that's when the real retreat begins, as you go back into that unreal world. And what I'd like to do tonight is just share with you some reflections about how to carry your practice forward. And I want to share with you, uh, kind of frame it around uh, a teaching that I got when I was a Zen monk. In the summer and the winter, we'd have our training period where we'd, we'd be doing much more intensive uh, sitting and practice. And as I mentioned in one of my other talks, we would have usually at least once a month what's called Dai Session, which is a, a very intense seven-day meditation retreat. And sometimes after a Dai Session, you'd have another Session, which would be called Nyoren Kashi Session. And Nyoren Kashi at least this is what I was told, it can be translated as this activity of kneading the dough. So it was a chance of going into this other retreat that wasn't as intense to knead the dough of the retreat back into our lives. And that's going to be your task, is how do you knead the dough? How do you knead this back into your lives, this retreat that you've just been on? How do you bring it back into your life? I guess I'll just be honest. One of the best things about Nirankashi session is that it meant if we had another session after die session, we got to have a 5.30 a.m. wake up instead of a 3 a.m. wake up, <laughs> which I really liked. <laughs> it was a little crazy. <laughs> and I also want to share with you another uh, kind of frame that comes from uh, kind of traditional Zen practice, even though this is kind of this Theravada realm but I find it helpful also to frame this Nyurin Kashi session that I uh, want to invite you to engage in as you move beyond this retreat. And that's in, the, in a traditional Zen monastery, at least in a training monastery where, where monks are being trained. The idea is that the Zendo or the meditation hall is the place where you do everything. So you actually sleep in the Zendo in the meditation hall. You eat in the meditation hall in, in the Zendo. And it's, it's done that way so you have this, this feeling sense of never leaving that world. That you actually never leave the world of the Dharma. You never leave the world of practice. And really all practice is about is coming to understand that, that actually you can't leave it. You can't leave the world of the Dharma. You can't leave the world of practice. And yet we have these deluded thoughts that we are always leaving it. How do you get a sense of that when you leave here and get a sense that you're actually not leaving the retreat? You're not leaving the practice. You can't. How do you embody that? The most common question I get around post-retreat life is, how do I maintain a regular meditation practice? Because this is going to be, can give us the reminder that we can never leave the meditation hall, we can never leave the zendo, we can never leave the dharma. 
how do you continue with a regular practice? And maybe some of you have had this experience, right? You, you maybe have come off a retreat or you've uh, been really excited about the meditation practice and there's a kind of regularity that happens in your life of engaging in it. And then the days go on, the responsibilities come in and then it starts to wane and it's, it's more and more difficult. Does anyone experience that or am I the only one? <laughs> it's tough. How to deal with this? And practically, one of the things that I found so helpful to continue a daily practice is um, actually talking a little bit about something that Jaya uh, shared with us last night, which is this Pali word chanda, which sometimes you could say is, is translated as desire or zeal. To me, it points to the importance of passion on this practice. When I'm passionate about my spiritual path, it's not difficult to sit. It's not difficult to have a regular sitting meditation practice because I'm moved by it. For example, one time I decided to try to take up juggling. Juggling was not something I was very passionate about. <laughs> and if I juggled for you, you would actually see that. <laughs> And, and I want to point this, this out because so often the idea is, well, I can't have a regular meditation practice because I'm not a disciplined person. I'm actually not a disciplined person. What allows my practice to be carried forward is my passion. When my passion is deep, my, my practice gets carried along by that. The author of the the book, The Little Prince, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry puts it well. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn of the vast and endless sea. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Can you contact the yearning that might be underneath your spiritual path, your spiritual practice, that probably moved you to be here and will move you to continue? There's a place for this quality. This, you could say, is chanda, this passion for the practice. In one of the commentaries of the Sudhimaga, which is a commentary to the, the Pali discourses, the early discourses of, of, of the discourses of early Buddhism, there's this wonderful image that's given of chanda. Uh, this commentator says, it's like a hand reaching and that's the quality, that's the need for, for uh, passion is to allow us to reach. The reaching isn't the problem, it's the grasping that's the problem. We need to allow ourselves to be moved, but to be moved in a way that's unentangled, that's not complicated by my expectations, but moves me to continue. 
And it brings me to a question I think that's important to hold for yourself of what keeps the passion for this practice going for you? What is it? It's an important question to ask yourself. And in particular, it's important to ask because that answer is probably going to be different for every single person in this room. And if it's, if I need to really contact what I'm passionate about, that thing that's going to move me, it needs to make sure that it, that it really fits with my life in particular. And we'll segue into what's important to you in your life. It could be the simple act of simply being present. It could be family, friends, relationship. It could be the importance of being here for your life. The importance of community. What moves you? And when you're clear about what moves you, you can tie this practice in with that. And you can cultivate, you can cultivate the passion needed to continue. And then some other things just around a regular practice, some kind of regular sitting meditation practice. Actually, before that, I want to come back to chanda, this, this, this quality of passion. Another kind of very simple, practical way to allow for this movement, like this arm that's reaching. What I find helpful is when I finish a retreat, is that one of the first things I do is I, is I get on my calendar what my next retreat is going to be. So, I, so I'm catching myself in the space where, my spe- where I can feel the depth of my passion and I allow it to determine that other island out there. Because it's easy, it's easy to forget in that unreal world out there what's important to you. Actually, Milan Kandera puts it well. He says, when you go fast, you forget. When your heart and mind are slowed, have slowed down, can you place that, place that intention? If that fits for you. Also in terms of sitting meditation practice, and it, it took me so long to figure this out, is that, <laughs> might sound silly, is, is I have to remember that my daily meditation practice feels very different than my retreat meditation practice. Because sometimes what happens is you go on retreat and then your mind starts to settle down a little bit or you start to get a sense of what it means to meditate. Even if your mind still all over the place today, you might have a sense of, oh, I have at least a little bit more of a feeling of what this is about. And then you come home and there's a little bit of momentum like that for a while. And then that sense starts to drop off and there can be a sense of, what am I doing wrong? I mean, this doesn't feel like retreat anymore and that's what I'm going for. To remember that daily practice in your life is such a different beast than, than retreat practice. It's going to feel different. And, and don't have this expectation or this desire to try to make it feel like you're on retreat. They're two different worlds. So to notice when your mind is chasing after any of those small feelings of your mind being settled that might have happened on retreat. They're whole different worlds and we have to get a sense of, of the feeling sense of the daily practice in and of itself.
a few other things to keep in mind. We just wonderful conversation this morning about how long to sit. I so love that answer. Is it seven minutes or 14 minutes? <laughs> what I can notice about my mind at times is the way I consider it. And, and I think the important thing is, is to get a sense of what is going to fit in your life in one way, is one way to think about it. But I think there's sometimes a danger to think about it in that sense. Because then I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting what I, what I shared with you at the beginning, that, that uh, I, I can't leave the meditation hall. I can't leave the world of the Dharma. And when I have a sense of that, it's not so much how do I fit practice into my life, how do I situate my life around my practice? Because so many times I can compartmentalize what we're doing here. You might find your mind doing the same thing. I think the powerful thing about this path for me is not just the sitting meditation, but that it's, it's transformed how I live my life, how I look at my life. So I invite you to turn that question around. How do, you, how do you move your life around so there's space for this? You might need to give up some things. You might need to simplify your life. If this is important, I think that can be a, a, a different way of exploring that question. And at the same time, I think it's important just around a regular meditation practice not to make it just another arena that you beat yourself up about because you're not doing enough. I remember working with a woman who was a, uh, uh, a concert uh, violinist and she got interested in this, this path and this practice and really started to engage in it, really uh, taken by the Dharma and, and meditation. And she came to me once and she had this realization she realized that her mind was uh, taking on meditation the way she had taken on the violin. She said uh, for uh, violin, how she became a concert violinist is that every day she'd, she'd practice is that her practice and her skill was never enough. And what started to happen in her life, actually I think this is what drove her to practice, is that um, playing the violin actually became oppressive because it was just a reminder of how there was just one more step she had to take in playing music. And there was one more thing that she had to get down. And there was one more step. So it just reinforced this sense of lack in her life. And she was utilizing the violin just to reinforce that. And the, the shocking thing to her was then she was realizing, wow, I've done the same thing with my meditation practice. It's just become this arena where I can get a sense of how I'm not good enough, how there's a sense of lack, how I'm not doing it. So important to see that. Just to maybe broaden it. I, I think one of the things I've noticed about my spiritual practice is many, many of the unskillful ways I relate to my life I just bring to my practice. But the beautiful thing about meditation is it's the one place I actually get to see it and I get to begin to have space around it. And then a different relationship can begin to arise. So another invitation to be sensitive to this. 
Are you bringing some kind of dynamic of not enough to it? Sometimes you might find, like I have, that we can situate our lives, we can situate our spiritual practice, we can situate everything around a quality of not enough. What's it like just to have the simple practice of seeing that right now, this is enough? This breath right now, it's enough. Can you sense that? There can be an immediacy to it and something so relieving about it. I mean, we create whole lives around this not being enough. Sometimes one way to get a sense of that is asking the question of, What do you see a complete life being? What is a complete life? What does it mean to live a complete life? Do you only live a complete life if you make it to 80 or 85? Someone who's made it to 85, have they lived a complete life? If you die at 18, like a friend of mine did when I was in high school, Is his life incomplete? Or one who dies at nine or 23 or 46? Is their life complete or incomplete? What makes your life complete? What's gonna make this life that you're living feel like a complete life? It's tricky because I'm sure you've seen the stories. If only, if only I get that relationship or this job or I get over this or that, then my life's going to be complete. And then complete, complete, getting a complete life is, is impossible in that way. There's something powerful about feeling the, the completeness of this moment, that this moment is enough. Just that, just that is enough for an entire practice. And don't get me wrong, I I love the narrative of moving ahead in life and blossoming and growing. I love that stuff, the linear narrative. But there's also a big hook to it. And it's just a story. It can be a helpful story. It's the story of early Buddhism. But this other story that this moment is complete is also can be an effective story. So it also allows me to remember that I can't, I can't leave the meditation hall. I can't leave the zendo. I can't leave the world of the Dharma. What reminds me to continue to practice and to deepen my practice? And to uh, share this other piece, I want to start with a a story. Once upon a time, 
the Buddha was hanging out with his attendant. This time, this day, his attendant was the Venerable Magiya. His, his, the Buddha's most common attendant was actually his cousin, Ananda, and they had a very close relationship. But for some reason on this day, uh, the Venerable Magiya was, was the Buddha's attendant. And at this time, Magiya was a, a, a younger, young, younger monastic. And the Buddha and Magiya went out to, on alms round to beg for food in the morning. And as they were walking towards the village, there was this beautiful mango grove. And Megia eyed the mango grove. And I don't know if you've ever seen a mango tree, but their branches spread out in a way that they provide this really wonderful shade. And as he saw the mango grove, he was inspired. He's inspired to practice the Dharma. He's inspired to, to meditate. So on their way back from alms, alms around, he said uh, something like to the Buddha, Venerable One, I'm... I'm inspired to practice the Dhamma, to go in and to um, do what needs to be done and go uh, practice meditation underneath the, the mango tree. And it's interesting what the Buddha said. He said, Magia, um, please don't leave me alone. I'm wondering if you can wait until someone else can attend on me, until someone else can come and be with me before you go. Which I just want to point out is really interesting, right? The Buddha practiced a lot in solitude. So he's saying something very specifically to Magiya about this. And then the Magiya said, I think, something like, Oh, come on. Pretty please. I really want to practice. <laughs> and then the Buddha said, Again, Magiya, please, if you can just wait not to leave me alone. Oh, come on. Pretty please. I really want to awaken. It's good to remember if you ever meet a Buddha. The third time, a lot of times they acquiesce. <laughs> Very well then, Magia, please go and meditate underneath the, the, mango, uh, the mango tree. So Magia goes out and for what's called the day's abiding, begins to meditate. And then it said, Magia is assailed by unwholesome thoughts as he's sitting underneath the mango tree. Maybe you can relate to this overwhelmed by his own mind. So he comes running back to the Buddha. I think he probably says something like, you'll never believe what happens. My mind was assailed by unwholesome thoughts. I'm sure the Buddha said, really? Is that what happened? <laughs> and then the Buddha says, uh, it's striking what the Buddha says. He says, just so, Magia, this is why, and he gives a list, but the first, the first thing he encourages the Magia around, he says, this, why, this is why, Magia, that um, what is first and foremost is spiritual friendship. This is what's needed. Jaya so beautifully shared this same teaching with us under this, this uh, quality of taking refuge in Sangha. It's remembering that you can't do it alone. You cannot do this path alone. And no one can do it for you. You can't do it alone. And no one can do it for you. Our practice moves forward with the support of community. Can you find, where can you find community? Where can you find spiritual friendship to support your path? 
Because you're going out in a world out there that's not going to be supporting what you're interested most likely. Have you noticed that? There's a whole torrent, a whole river that's going in such a different direction. We need, we need that support if we want something different in our lives, if we want a different way of being in our life. And it's not only that, it's the engagement in community to me is the manifestation of what we're doing here. I think there's something so diluted with this idea that I awaken (laughs) and something more accurate about we awaken, we awaken together. I feel this is beautifully put by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh who says that uh, just using this, again, this mythical language, the archetypal language of Buddhism. He says that the future Buddha, Maitreya Buddha or uh, Mataya Buddha, will come not as, a, as an individual, but as a community. That the manifestation of the future Buddha, Buddha will be the manifestation of an awakened community rather than an awakened individual. To me, there's something so accurate about that. Because that's one of the delusions I, I struggle with is that the sense of here I am and there's the world out there. We've alluded to this, how this, this fixed sense of self is so confining. It's just a construct, this whole idea that here I am and then the world's out there. When you engage in community, what I find is it reminds me that I don't wake up, we wake up, we wake up together. And, and one thing that I found helpful, just a kind of a specific practice that I found is that when I go sit with a group, I don't ask myself the question of what can I get out of going to this sangha or this community or this group of people of sitting that I'm sitting with. It's more the question, what can I give? Oh, I can give my silence. I can give that quality of one more person in there meditating together, cultivating this quality of being present. Well, I think I'll go to this group so I can offer that. And the great thing about that is then I'm never bummed out. It's not like, oh my God, that was the worst Dharma talk. I just wasted my nights. Because <laughs> then it's all about me. But if I'm offering something, it doesn't matter how it turns out. I've had the chance to, to give, to give to community. Maybe a little bit more about that. And I think this, again, then this moves into a way to hold practice. And what I'm going to share with you is both, you could say, the beginning of practice and the manifestation of it. And it's this cultivating this quality to have your practice be for the benefit of of all beings or the benefit of, of others. Not only yourself, but others as well. I find it such a relief when it's bigger than just me. It can be so confining when it's just about me. John Ruskin puts it well. He says, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a very small package. (laughs) (laughs) 
how to break open that, that package, how to have a different intention behind your practice that can fuel it. And some of it comes around a, a, a really a quality that, that flowers later on in Buddhism called bodhicitta. Literally, it's uh, the harder mind of awakening. But it's, it's really this having this, you could say this passion, you could even say a chanda, a kind of chanda, that's, that's this passion for, that my practice goes for the liberation of all beings, or if that's too big, um, others at least. And I want to share with you an expression of this. This comes from a text called the Bodhicharya Vitara, which is translated the way of the Bodhisattva. And it's the Dalai Lama's most favorite text. And I want to share with you an expression of this quality of bodhicitta. And I, I want to point out, even before I share it with you, this is a very grand description. It's totally over the top. And I love grand over the top. <laughs> you might not. But I think there's something uh, beautiful about Shanti Deva's intention behind his practice that allows him to break out of this very small package of me. And this is the intention he has for, for, his, for his practice. He says, may I become food and drink during times of famine. May I be an inexhaustible, inexhaustible treasury for the destitute. May I be the protector for those who were without protectors, a guide for travelers, a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest, and may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree, and a wish-granting cow. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be in various ways a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. And at the end of the text, he, he reiterate, reiterates it just with this line. As long as space endures and for as long as beings remain, until then, may I too endure to dispel the misery of the world. <coughs> to have the intention to free the heart and mind so, so that this world that we live in can be free. And it's true, it's, it's over the top. Maybe just a little bit about that. This text, the Bodhicharya Vatara, is interesting. So in the beginning, Shantideva is making this very grand aspiration to be, be there as long as space and time endure to, for the liberation of all beings. And then I think it's in the next chapter or so, he has the statement of like, oh my God, what have I just done? <laughs> Am I crazy to make such an intention? how am I going to deal with this? And he basically says, this is kind of my language, 
to aspire high, you can aim low. And then he says, and start with just like giving vegetables to people. That we can have this deep aspiration for the world that we live in and keep our practice simple. But you might find when you have deep aspiration, it helps, it helps expand what we're actually doing here and getting a, a bigger sense of, of what we're doing here with this practice. Another thing that reminds me that I can't leave the meditation hall, I can't leave the world of the Dharma, is to remember that the, this, this path is just much more about than just sitting meditation and walking meditation. It's about the exploration of ethical conduct, the exploration of what we're doing in the afternoons, these beautiful qualities of heart, like loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy. Finding time for those. I find them so helpful, especially when I'm walking around, taking a day of just sending a quality of kindness towards the people I'm, I'm walking by, or compassion, or appreciative joy. And most importantly, what I need to come back to is something I've shared with you before, which is this teaching of yes, this too. Can I remember that what's arising right now, this too, is my practice? There's a poem by Denise Levertov, which I, th I think really uh, expresses this beautifully. And the title of the poem is Benediction. And a benediction, you could say, is a kind of invocation for an invocation for divine help or an invocation for a blessing or, or, or some kind of guidance. So this is her benediction. She begins, Marvelous truth, confront us at every turn in every guise. Iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air, dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets, thrust close your smile that we know you, terrible joy. Marvelous truth, confront us, confront of us, confront us at every turn and every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets, thrust close your smile that we know you, terrible joy. What a beautiful benediction. This invocation to have marvelous truth confront us, confront of us everywhere, right in those kitchens where you have so much to do on the ordinary streets. 
and to be confronted by it, right? To, to have that smile thrust close to us. And I so appreciate those last two words. Terrible joy. To be confronted by all of it, to show up for all of it, whether it's unpleasant or pleasant, whether it's terrible or joyful. To open your heart to that, to that, to offer it a quality of presence. I want to uh, take some time just in the midst of this this uh, encouragement or invitation to make everything one's practice to clarify uh, a word that's used a lot in this tradition, insight. Because there can be some confusion about what spiritual insight is. And I think this is important, especially for daily practice and really the direction of this path in this practice. So sometimes when we hear the word insight, we can have a sense of that insight comes when I have some kind of aha experience, or it comes when I have some kind of deep emotional cathartic experience. And I have that experience and then it's like, wow, now I really understand. And I wanna point out that yeah, insight can come that way. We can have a deeply emotional experience that really is tied with some kind of insight. So I don't want to deny that in any kind of way. But I just want to say that's just a small sliver of, of spiritual insight. And I also want to name it because sometimes the deep emotional cathartic experience can become addictive. We can get a sense that my life isn't changing unless it's big and unless it's emotional. And it can work like an addiction because what happens is very physiological is we have some kind of spike in activation and then there's a release. Have you ever felt the release of that? And that release, we can just be chasing after. And you can just go on that merry-go-round for a long time without finding a different way of being in the world. And again, I want to say that there are insights that are going to have that feeling, so it's not to deny that, but not to confine it just to that. Spiritual insight, really what this is going towards, it's, it's this going for this feeling, a different feeling sense of what it is to live in this world and a different skill about living in this world. I equate it more with the, you could say, the understanding that comes of like learning how to ride a bike or learning how to swim. Did you ever learn how to ride a bike or learn how to swim? And sometimes there is an aha moment around swimming or biking. But a lot of times it's just getting back on the bike or getting back in the pool and we swim the laps or we ride the bike or we get on our cushion again and again and again and then we get a feeling sense of it. We get a different feeling sense of what it is to swim rather than drown. We get a different feeling sense of what it is to ride on the bike rather than to fall off the bike. And it happens again and again and again from the repetition of it. And there might not be any kind of aha, aha experience whatsoever but we finally come to the point where I know how to swim. I know how to ride the bike. And not only that, if you were to ask me how to swim, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I wouldn't be able to put it into words. 
If you ask me how to ride a bike, I have no idea how I'd explain that to you, but I know it. That's what this practice is like, is, 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 is it opens up, uh, up this invitation to get a, way, a feeling sense of a different way of being in the world that you know, but you can't put into words. And sometimes that knowing can come in aha or a big, big emotional experience, but often it's not. It comes from being in the pool again and again and again. That's the working of insight. To allow for the ordinary because the ordinary is also transformative in your practice. And when I remember that, it's easier to get on the cushion every day. It's easier to practice. It's easier to engage again and again in kindness and compassion. So I, I do want to end just by going over some real practical things that are helpful to remember when you're coming off retreat, especially if this is your first retreat. retreat. It's important to remember that you're much more sensitive than you think. You might have even noticed that with some of the integration talking that we did, is, is your system is quite sensitive right now. And it can be difficult to see, and that's why we wanted to do some of the integration is to take some of the edge off of that as you trans transition back into that kind of unreal world. And it can hit you by surprise at times. I remember I did a, was, I think it was about a two and a half month silent retreat in Nepal. And the place I was doing retreat in Nepal, there weren't any kind of integration days. It's like you sit, you pack your bags, and you leave. <laughs> Different, different way, and I made my way to Kathmandu. And I remember it was the the day after. I was sitting, I was in a restaurant, and they had the TV on. And I was, I remember, I distinctly remember I had, I was having eggs, and the TV was on, and I think it was the BBC News, and there was some tragic event that had happened. And I remember watching this on the news, and it was completely emotionally overwhelming. And I had this kind of emotion, not kind of, I did, I had this emotional break, break, breakdown in this restaurant. You know, here I am like sobbing over my eggs. It was almost like they started to well up with the tears. <laughs> my poor waiter, I think he was worried that there was something wrong with my tears and I was having an emotional breakdown about my eggs or something. <laughs> it just, I was trying to explain to him, no, no, I'm fine. I just came off retreat. I'm really sensitive, you know. How do you explain that in Nepali? I didn't know too many Nepali words. <laughs> So it's, it's important to remember that this might happen to your eggs at some points in the morning. <laughs> so it's good to take things slowly and easily and to be gentle with yourself as, you're, as you kind of acclimatize to that other world. This can be especially around talking. So just remember, you know, tomorrow when we start to engage in talking with each other, maybe after the retreat, to, to just check in with how much energy is moving and to know that it's okay to take a break. If you can, if possible, not diving into media and email and texting too quickly. See if you can modulate that in some kind of manner. Major decisions, it's good to we wait at least one week when you come off retreat. I'm done with that world. <laughs> you quit your job, you quit your relationship, you 
<laughs> you become a renunciate. It's good. Just wait one week at least. And then you can contact Jaya about how to become a monastic. <laughs> and sometimes I find that I need to find ways to take breaks in the midst of all the things I do. And if you, if you go to work and it's difficult, one of the things that I found when I had to, was kind of thrown back into work is I remember just one, one thing and one place to go, and this might not be possible for all of you, is bathrooms. Aren't bathrooms awesome? Because you can go into a bathroom and nobody's going to ask you when you get out what you were doing in there, <laughs> which is so great. <laughs> Remember that. There's something sacred about the bathroom that nobody is going to mess with. And then lastly, um, being aware of how much you share about your experience with others. And you know it. I mean, even close friends can be this way. They, they ask you how your week was. In some ways, they might not really want to know. They might not be as interested as you are in this whole thing. You know, if you talk to them about the pain in your knee or how you had this emotion arise and it was a tightness in your body and then you were able to be with it and you weeped, but then you had this release and then you were with the breath for like 15 minutes. It was so amazing. <laughs> they might not be excited. <laughs> and it's difficult because we get excited about these things. <laughs> So I've learned that sometimes just the answer, it was pretty good, <laughs> is sometimes the best answer. And you'll know, you'll get a feeling sense of the friends or the people in your life that have a, a real interest. And sometimes I'll allow that interest to grow. And what's, what I find really important is to find, to allow the context to arise where you can have a meaningful sharing about it can have so much more of, a, a, of, of something that's important for you to actually actually have someone that can witness you and also someone that might listen. So to be sensitive to that because I've definitely set myself up where I've wanted to be heard and it's sometimes not there around, especially around people that don't get this in some kind of way. So just a sensitivity to that and also uh, you've been through something sacred. It might be different for each and every one of you but sometimes it needs some protection. So, and also, if, if you do have questions about carrying the practice forward, just to let you know, tomorrow morning we'll have a Q&A period where, where all of us will be sharing some things about that. So uh, you might want to write down anything that comes or reflections, and we can uh, explore some of that tomorrow as well. But in, in light of this, I, I, I guess I want to end by saying, you know, may our journey back into that unreal world. Um, may we do it in a way that uh, can really lead to the liberation of all beings and to this planet that we're living on. So let's sit just for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.